Welcome back to the lecture series on decision-making in public service. Um, today I'm going to work through part two of Thomas Metzinger's The Ego Tunnel. This is a section on discoveries and ideas. And we're going to delve a little bit into each chapter, but not go into quite as much detail as every chapter leading up to this point. So these chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6 are going to get one lecture. In this section, um, or in this part, I suppose, Metzinger goes from laying out the basics of his model and what consciousness is and the phenomenal self-model and the ego tunnel, and then takes some recent discoveries in neuroscience and, and in philosophy and tries to integrate what those new discoveries, what kind of ideas, that's why it's called ideas and discoveries, presents to thinking about this model of the self, the phenomenal self-model, and the ego tunnel. And he's going to do this across some interesting uh, neuroscience research that I'm not going to go into a bunch of detail on, but if you want to learn more about it, it's uh, right there in the chapters. And in part, we're going to talk about out-of-body experiences, uh, which uh, when I first come across this book seemed like something that uh, I would not have known was a, uh, a topic that could be studied with, with the rigor that has been applied to it. So we'll get to learn a little bit about that and what outer body experiences tell us about what it means to feel ownership of our, of our bodies and the ownership of our, of our minds. And then from there, we're going to um, move from a conversation of ownership to this idea of what is agency and what does, what does it mean to have agency? And then what does this mean for uh, discussions of, of free will? And we're going to talk about some of the alien hand experiments there, um, what it means to hallucinate agency, and exactly how free are we, all topics touched by Metzinger in that chapter. And in chapter five, uh, Metzinger talks about lucid dreaming and how this is an interesting example of intertunnel communication. We're going to spend just a moment or two on that, but not too long. And then we're going to close with the final chapter um, from this part, and we're going to look at mirror neurons in the empathic ego and how mirror neurons give us uh, the empathic ego and how we can generate mental images of what it's like, mental simulations of what it's like to be someone else and the state they're in. So let's jump right into it. Um, in the first chapter here, uh, again, Metzinger gives us some examples of outer body experiences, um, but I'm going to pull a couple quotes from there to kind of put the chapter in context. First is, he starts the chapter by saying, owning your body, its sensations, and its various parts is fundamental to the feeling of being someone. So ownership of, of the things that you feel, of your physical presence, are all things that contribute to your sense of being a self and being someone. And uh, Metzinger speculates that this is a specific aspect of conscious experience, he says it's a form of automatic self-attribution that integrates a certain kind of conscious content into what is experienced as oneself. So ownership's a piece of this. Um, and 
Bessinger goes on to say, your bodily self-image, excuse me, your bodily self-model is created by a process of multi-sensory integration based on a simple statistical correlation your brain has discovered. The phenomenal incorporation of the rubber hand into your self-model results from correlated tactile and visual inputs. And this is where Metzinger highlights the rubber hand illusion. Um, and the rubber hand illusion essentially is by, uh, by some clever experiment construct. You can have a sense of ownership of a rubber hand as, a, as opposed to your own hand. And um, so Metzinger says of this experiment, it clearly shows that the consciously experienced sense of ownership is directly determined by represent representational processes in the brain because you're able to give that sense of ownership to something that is actually not a part of you that is a rubber hand. And Mesinger goes on to say, the emergence of the bodily self-model, the conscious image of the body as a whole, is based on a subpersonal automatic process of binding different features together of achieving a coherent self. Uh, what else here? So uh, Mesinger says, recently psychometric studies have shown that the feeling of having a body is made up of various subcomponents, which I've already mentioned. The first of which here we're talking about is ownership, uh, another being agency, and another being location, all of which can be disassociated. So the me-ness cannot be reduced to here-ness. And more important, agency, that is the performance of an action, and ownership are distinct, identifiable, and separable aspects of subject subjective experience, which is why we're spending some time focusing on ownership first and then on to agency. So, um, uh, some more updates from kind of the literature that Metzinger gives us. Recent neuroscientific data indicate that any successful extension of behavioral space is mirrored in the neural substrate of the body image and the brain. So your brain adopts this, uh, uh, this image and it's found in the neural substrates of the, of the body image and the brain. And so Messinger goes on speculating about what these, um, what these rubber hand experiences and then the the ability to for a tool to feel like an extension of your hand uh, means and he says quote a necessary precondition of expanding your space of action and your capabilities by using tools clearly seems to be the ability to integrate them into a pre-existing self model so to be able to integrate the extension of your of your space of uh, via tool or through the rubber hand illusion. You actually have to have a, a pre-existing self-model first. Mesinger says, conscious ex self-experience clearly is a graded phenomenon based on these studies. It increases in strength as an organism becomes more and more sensitive to an internal context and expands its capacities for self-control. Okay, moving on from the rubber hand illusion, at the end of that, Metzinger says, clearly a single general mechanism underlies the rubber hand illusion. 
the evolution of effortless tool use, the ability to experience bodily presence in a virtual environment, and the ability to control artificial devices with one's brain. This mechanism for being able to do that is the self-model, an integrated representation of the organism as a whole in the brain. This representation is an ongoing process that is flexible, can be constantly updated, and allows you to own parts of the world by integrating them into it. Its content is the content of the ego. All right, so this is the idea that our ego is in part some sense of ownership of our of a coherent self, and that this uh, the thing that's considered the bodily self in space is um, an ongoing process. It's flexible. We have a tool. It feels like we can reach out to the end of the tool. We're also uh, fall, I guess, cons uh, fall victim to the rubber hand illusion. And so our our representation of our bodily self-model is something that is flexible. Messinger then talks a bit about the outer body experience and how we, uh, how people who have outer body of experiences assign ownership uh, to um, an image of themselves leaving their bodies. And this can be, um, uh, Metzinger says, in its origins, this may be where the soul may have uh, been not a metaphysical notion, but simply a phenomenological one, the content of the phenomenal ego activated by the human brain during out-of-body experiences, and he says, my theory, the self-model theory of subjectivity, says that this subtle body does indeed exist, but is not made up of angel stuff or uh, astral matter. It is made of pure information flowing through the brain. All right, so Mexinger um, walks through some of the uh, outer body uh, experience experiments. Um, and he says that another reason the outer body experience is interesting from a philosophical perspective is that it is the best known state of consciousness in which two self-models are active at the same time. The, the model kind of floating above the body or, or viewing it and the actual body still being there. To be sure, he says, only one of them is the locus of identity, the place where, quote, place where the agent um, resides. And the other self-model, that of the physical body lying, say, on the bed below, is not strictly speaking a self-model because it does not function as the origin of the first person. In the outer body experience, the first person experiences or the sense of agent is located in the outer, the out-of-body uh, body. So again, uh, Messinger goes into some more details of this. You can see it in the book. But, uh, but basically the idea is that we can assign a notion of our bodily self to things that aren't just our physical body where we usually assign our bodily self. We can be tricked with the rubber hand illusion. Uh, we can have outer body experiences where our sense of ownership isn't in our body. Um, but that Metzinger's uh, proposition is that this is all experienced within our consciousness uh, it's all a neural correlate that um, and it's all our brain processing information 
and they show that in some work that they do, they're able to generate a virtual out-of-body experience um, through a clever experiment. Um, and at the end of this chapter, uh, Metzinger begins to reflect on sort of, okay, what does all of this say about the essence of selfhood? And he says the answer, he says, well, I'll just I'll read the beginning of this section for you. Why is all this information important for the philosophy of the conscious self? Why are all these examples and these experiments useful? Can it really help us to find the conceptual essence of selfhood to pinpoint what all self-conscious beings in the universe have in common? His answer is yes, he says. What we really want are the constitutive uh, conditions for selfhood. We want to know what is truly necessary and what is perhaps only sufficient to bring about an ego, the fundamental feeling of being someone. He says his experiments demonstrate that agency is not necessary because they selectively manipulate only on two, uh, excuse me, they selectively manipulate only two dimensions, self-identification with the content of a conscious body image and self-localization in a spatial frame of reference. This shows how the target phenomenon self-conscious can be causally controlled by multi-sensory conflict alone. That is important because if we combine the discovery that this can be achieved simply by creating a conflict between sight and touch with the fact that the shift in visual perspective during out-of-body out experiences can also be caused by an epileptic seizure or by direct stimulation with an electrode in the brain, we get a much better idea of what the simplest form of self-consciousness might be. It must be something very local, something in the brain itself, and it is independent of motor control of moving your body. He says, so what is the essence? Quote, location in space and time plus a transparent body image seem to be very close. He goes on to say, here's an interim theory. Minimal self-consciousness is not control, but what makes control possible. It includes an image of the body in time and space, a location, plus the fact that the organism creating this image does not recognize it as an image. So going back to our transparent self-models, he calls this identification here. So we must have a now plus a spatial frame of reference and a transparent body model. Then we need a visual or auditory uh, perspective originating within the body volume, a center of projection embedded in the volume of the body. But the really interesting step is the one from the minimal self to a slightly more robust first-person perspective. It is a step from selfhood as embodiment to selfhood as sub subjectivity. Goes on to say, the essence of this slightly stronger form of selfhood, what a philosopher might call its representational content, is attentional agency plus the realization that the body is now available for global control. So we need attentional agency here and a whole body image that is ready, a body self model, a body self model that is ready for global control. So uh, Mesinger goes on to talk about the fact that we 
we live in a virtual world. We're not in direct uh, contact with reality, which is something that we've highlighted numerous times. Um, and that the ego is a special part of this virtual reality. He says, by generating an internal image of the organism as a whole, it allows the organism to appropriate its own hardware. It is evolution's answer to the need for explaining one's inner and outer actions to oneself, predicting one's behavior and monitoring critical system properties. Finally, it allows the system to depict internally the history of its actions as its own history. So these are all, again, pieces of the story of what give rise, gives rise to ownership as part of the consciousness. Uh, Mesinger has what I think is an interesting insight a little bit later in the chapter. He says, um, whereas in the case of the virtual body, the slave robot may be thousands of miles away. In the case of the ego, the target system and the simulating system are identical. The conscious experience of being a subject arises when a single organism learns to enslave itself, to give it give its bodily control over to the self. In a way, as Inger says, the conscious part of our brains are like the body's head-mounted display. They immerse the organism in a simulated behavioral space. As Inger then talks about some interesting experiments with phantom limbs, that uh, are similar to the rubber hand illusion um, that I'll let you review in the book. And he goes on at the end of this chapter with some quotes that I'll leave you with, and then we will move on to from ownership to agency to free will. The end of this chapter, um, Metzinger says, um, what exactly is it that you feel as your own body right now as you are reading these words? At this point in our investigations into consciousness, it seems obvious that we are never in direct contact with our physical bodies, but rather with a particular kind of representational content. But what exactly is it that is represented in this layer of our conscious self? In the second book of his famous work, De Anima, Aristotle said that the soul is simply the form of the body and that it perishes at death. Is this what we have newly rediscovered by studying phantom limbs, the inner form of the body, and the global model of its shape? Spinoza said the soul is the idea that the body develops of itself because the object of our soul is the body as it exists and nothing else. Again, it is intriguing to see how classical philosophical ideas contribute to a deeper understanding of what it means to be an embodied self. Closes the chapter with this uh, final quote. Strictly speaking, and on the level of conscious experience alone, you live your life in a virtual body and not in a real one. This point will become clearer when we consider offline states and the chapters on dreaming and lucid dreaming, which we are going to go over quickly. But first, let's talk about what it means to go from ownership to agency, and then what this then means about for free will. Here, Metzinger gives the example of uh, an alien hand, where um, there are people who experience losing control of one of their hands and doing things without them being consciously aware of it or directing it. Uh, to certain uh, outcomes. 
and this highlights that one of the things that we haven't yet discussed, as uh, Metzinger points out in this chapter, is that we also need explicit representations of goal states. Uh, your requirements, your desires, your values, and what you want to achieve by acting in the world. Not only do we need sense of a of a self, but a self that is directed. And you need a conscious ego, as Metzinger says, to appropriate these goal states to make them your own. Philosophers calling call this having practical intentionality. Mental states are often directed as the fulfillment of your personal goals. Having a mind means being not only a thinker and a knower, but also an agent, an acting self with a will of one's own. So we're going from just ownership to agency. And uh, there's some often some conflict in certain uh, psychiatric syndromes between the uh, willing self and the thinking self. Um, and the alien hand uh, experiments, not experiments, but the alien hand kind of syndrome uh, highlights that. And Metzinger goes on to say, in fact, in some psychiatric syndromes, patients experience every consciously perceived event in their environment as directly caused by themselves. In other mental diseases, such as schizophrenia, one may feel that one's body and thoughts are remote controlled and that the whole world is one big machine, a soulless and meaningless mechanism grinding away. So even if we have notions of ownership, we don't always have notions of agency, and this is highlighted in these psychiatric syndromes. And Metzinger says this raises a question. Do actions as such really exist, given that some people experience having full ownership of their actions, and others experience having no ownership of their actions, having agency, complete agency, or no agency at all. A position, Mezinger says, between the two philosophical extremes would define action as a particular kind of physical event. Most events in the physical universe are only events, but an extremely tiny subset are also actions. That is, events caused by an explicit goal representation in the conscious mind of a rational agent. Goal states must be owned by being part of a self-model. No ego tunnel, no action. Messinger goes on to say the phenomenal experience of ownership and the phenomenal experience of agency are thus intimately related, and both are important aspects of, your, of the conscious sense of self. If you lose control of your actions, your sense of self is greatly diminished. So these things aren't completely uh, independent of one another. Mezinger says, as I discussed in the chapter on em empathic ego, which we'll get to, there is solid empirical evidence showing that the hand is represented in Broca's, re Broca's area, a part of our brain that is of recent evolution, distinguishes us from monkeys, and has to do with language comprehension and abstract meaning. He goes on to say, the thinking self would then have grown out of the bodily self by simulating bodily movements in an abstract mental space. He says, I have been flirting with this idea for a long time because it would solve Descartes' mind-body problem. It would show how a thinking thing, could have evolved out of an extended thing, 
and uh, this points to a theme running through much of the recent research on agency and the cell. In its origin, the ego is a neurocomputational device for appropriating and controlling the body. First the physical one, and then the virtual one. And um, Metzinger then highlights the importance of attentional agency, um, which he says is the experience of being the entity that controls the ray of attention. And this is going to make up a lot of what we mean by agency. Um, he says, uh, then there is a cognitive agency, an interesting parallel to what philosophers call the cognitive subject. Cognitive subject is a thinker, a thinker of thoughts and can also ascribe this fac faculty to herself, but often thoughts just drift by like clouds. Um, and let's see here. Messinger goes on and says, agency allows us to select things, our next thought, the next perceptual object we want to focus on, our bodily movement. Uh, it is also the experience of executive consciousness, not only the experience of initiating change, but also of carrying it through and sustaining a more complex action over time. <clears throat> but the alien hand syndrome, as Metzinger says, forces us to conclude that what we call the will can be outside of our self-models as well as inside it. It can be part of our self-model or it can be something that's influencing it that is not part of our self-model. Such goal-directed movements, as Metzinger says, might not even be consciously experienced at all. <clears throat> In a serious neurological disorder called echinetic mutism, patients do nothing but lie silently in their beds. They have a sense of ownership of their body as a whole, but although they are awake and go through the ordinary sleep-wake cycles, they are not agents. They do not act in any way. They do not initiate any thoughts. They do not direct their attention. They do not talk or move. So again, here, an example of a difference between having just ownership as opposed to ownership plus some agency. goes on to say, many of our best empirical theories suggest that the special sense of self associated with agency has to do with the conscious experience of having an attention and with the experience of motor feedback. He says, this binding turns the experience of movement into the experience of action, of an action. But note once again that neither the mind nor the self is a little man in the head. There is no one doing the creating, the comparing, and the deciding. These are just neural correlates in your brain. All right, so then Mezinger goes on to talk about hallucinating agency. Um, and it turns out that, as he says, by directly stimulating the brain, we can trigger not only the execution of a bodily movement, but also the conscious experience of having the urge to perform the movement. In other words, we can experimentally induce the conscious experience of will. So, through stimulation to the brain, experimenters have demonstrated that they can cause you to hallucinate a desire to do something. So, Metzinger says, this much is clear. Whatever else the conscious experience of will may be, it seems to be something that can be turned on and off 
with the help of a small electrical current from an electrode in the brain. So in this way, our sense of will, our sense of deciding what to decide and deciding can be stimulated by electrodes in the brain. Now think about that for a minute. So there are some other examples of how people have hallucinated agency um, and um, it's kind of an interesting example there that you'll see in the book and based on the findings from this experiment of people hallucinating agency, the authors of that study suggest that the phenomenal experience of will, now I'm quoting Metzinger, or mental causation is governed by three principles. The principle of exclusivity holds that the subject's thoughts should be the only introspectively available cause of action. The principle of consistency holds that the subjective intention should be consistent with the action. And the principle of priority holds that the thought should precede the action in a timely manner. He goes on to say, the social context and the long-term experience of being an agent, of course, contribute to creating the sense of agency. One might suspect that the sense of agency is only a subjective appearance, a swift reconstruction after the act, which is essentially what that experiment highlighted. Still, today's best cognitive neuroscience of the conscious will shows that it is also a pre-construction. Experiencing yourself as a willing agent has much to do with, as it were, introspectively peering into the middle of a long processing chain in your brain. So there's a chain of events that eventually give rise to a conscious thought, and part of what you're doing when you experience subjective will is peering in into that process. Patrick Haggard of University of College of University College London, who Metzinger says perhaps the leading researcher in the fascinating and somewhat frightening new field of research into agency in the self, has demonstrated that our conscious awareness of movement is not generated by the execution of ready-made motor commands. Instead, it is shaped by preparatory processes in the premotor system of the brain. Various experiments show that our awareness of intention is closely related to the specification of which movements we want to make. Metzinger goes on to say, if Haggard is right, then the sense of agency, the conscious experience of being someone who acts, results from the process of binding the awareness of intention together with the representation of one's actual movements. This also suggests what subjective awareness of, in, what subjective awareness of intention is good for. It can detect potential mismatches with events occurring in the world outside the brain. Sorry, I'm reading a lot of this directly. This stuff is, um, um, there's a lot of interesting things here that I want to make sure that I'm capturing uh, Metzinger's representation of it in the actual evidence. Finishes this, uh, this section by saying, the conscious experience of will 
end of agency, allows an organism to own the subpersonal processes in its brain responsible for the selection of action goals, the construction of specific movement patterns, and the control of feedback from the body. When the sense of agency evolved in human beings, some of the stages in the immensely complex causal network in our brain were raised to the level of global avail availability as part of kind of conscious thought. Now we could attend to them, think about them, and possibly even interrupt them. For the first time, we could experience ourselves as beings with goals, and we could use internal representations of these goals to control our bodies. For the first time, we could form an internal image of ourselves as able to fulfill certain needs by choosing an optimal route. But, as Metzinger poses, the next question, how free are we really? At what point are we, as conscious entities, part of this process, this chain of lower level events to higher level events and higher level representations to make decisions? This gets into the debate of, do we have free will? And... Um, This is a tricky one uh, that people, myself included, uh, when looking at this evidence, have a really hard time with thinking how, uh, what this evidence says for how free our choices are and what that means. So Metzinger says, probably most professional philosophers in the field would hold that given your body, the statement of your brain, and your specific environment, you could not act differently from the way you're acting now. That your actions are preordained, as it were. If you were to put a twin in exactly the same situation and have the exact same uh, molecules present, they would behave the same way. As Inger says, the phenomenal ego, the experiential content of the human self-model that we've been discussing, clearly disagrees with the scientific worldview and with the widely shared opinion that your functionally identical doppelganger, your, your hypothetical twin, could not have acted otherwise, we take our own phenomenolog phenom phenomenology seriously, we clearly experience ourselves as beings that can initiate new causal chains out of the blue, as beings that could have acted otherwise given exactly the same situation. The unsettling point about modern philosophy of mind and the cognitive neuroscience of will already apparent even at this early stage is that a final theory may contradict the way we have been subjectively experiencing ourselves for millennia. There will likely be a conflict between the scientific view of the acting self in the phenomenal narrative, the subjective story our brain tells us about what happens when we decide to act. It is also clear, Metzinger says, why these events popping up in the conscious self necessarily appear spontaneous and uncaused. They are the first link in the chain to cross the border from unconscious to conscious brain processes. You have the impression that they appeared in your mind out of the blue, so to speak. But they're just becoming available to you at some point in the neurocomputational process. Metzinger says, 
Science of the mind is now beginning to reintroduce those hidden facts forcefully into the ego tunnel. There will be a conflict between the biological reality tunnel in our heads and the neuroscientific image of humankind, and many people sense that this image might present a danger to our mental health. I think the irration, he says, and deep sense of resentment surrounding public debates on the freedom of the will have little to do with the actual options on the table. These reactions have to do with the perfectly sensible intuition that certain types of answers will not only be emotionally disturbing, but ultimately impossible to integrate into our conscious self-models. He goes on to say, if we, must tell our, if, we must, if one day we must tell an entirely different story about human will, about what human will is or is not, this will affect our societies in an unprecedented way, which is something we're going to continue to talk about later with uh, the consciousness revolution in part three. For instance, if accountability and responsibility do not really exist, it is meaningless to punish people as opposed to rehabilitating them for something they ultimately could not have avoided doing. Retribution would then appear to be a Stone Age concept, something we inherited from animals. When modern neuroscience discovers the sufficient neural correlates for willing, desiring, deliberating, excuse me, deliberating, and executing an action, we will be able to cause, amplify, extinguish, and modulate the conscious experience of will by operating on these neural correlates. It will become clear that the actual causes of our actions, desires, and intentions often have very little to do with what the conscious self tells us. Which is a weird world. And kind of in concluding in this chapter, Metzinger says, Neuroscientists like to speak of action goals, processes of motor selection, and the specification of movements in the brain. As a philosopher, and with all due respect, he says, I must say that this too is conceptual nonsense. If one takes the scientific worldview seriously, no, su no such things as goals exist, and there is nobody who selects or specifies an action. There is no process of selection at all. All we really have is dynam dynam dynamical self-organization. Moreover, the information processing taking place in the human brain is not even a rule-based kind of processing. Ultimately, it follows the laws of physics. The brain is best described as a complex system continuously trying to settle into a stable state, generating order out of chaos. Of course, he says, complex and flexible behaviors caused by inner images of goals still exist, and we may all continue to call these behaviors actions. But even if actions in this sense continue to be part of the picture, we may learn that agents do not, that is, there is no entity doing the acting. All right, that wraps up chapter four. In chapter five, Metzinger talks about what we can learn from lucid dreaming. And... Um, how the lucid how lucid dreaming has different types of attentional agency as opposed to regular conscious experience. Um, it focuses on different types of emotions. There are some ways to um, there are some strategies you can take to try to have lucid dreaming. 
And uh, Matt Zinger says in this chapter that he, quote, likes, that he, he says, I like these experiments because they are a rare example of trans-tunnel communication. When the lucid dreamers in the lab emit, when the lucid dreamer in the lab emits eye signals by deliberately moving his or her his or her dream eyes up and down, and scientists in the waking world read these signals off their instruments, a multi-user link between the dream tunnel and the waking tunnel is established. So in some of this lucid dream research, researchers have asked individuals when they're in a lucid dream to move their eyes in a certain way so that they know they're in a lucid dream, which is pretty fascinating. Moving forward from that chapter, um, it gives us lucid dreaming gives another tool to examine consciousness. Um, uh, and then at the end of that chapter, there's a nice lecture with Alan Hobson that I recommend you checking out. But in, uh, in the interest of moving this lecture along, I'm going to move on to the last chapter, which is for part two, which is the empathic ego. And this is a interesting chapter, I think, because we learn about a number of things. But the thing I want to focus on is um, mirror neurons, which we're going to get to. Before we get there, at the beginning of this chapter, as Zinger lays out the importance of this chapter and says, at the beginning of this book, we asked how a first-person perspective can emerge in the brain. The answer was that it does so through the creation of the ego tunnel. Now we can ask, what about the second person perspective? Or the we, the first person plural perspective? How does the conscious brain manage to get from the I to the you and the we? The thoughts, goals, feelings, and needs of other living beings in our environment constitute part of our own reality. Therefore, it is vital to understand how our brains were able to represent and create not just the inward perspective of the ego tunnel, but also a world containing multiple egos and multiple perspectives. Perhaps we will discover that large parts of the first-person perspective did not simply emerge in the brain, but were in part causally enabled by the social context we all found ourselves in from the very beginning. So we're going to examine how... Our interactions with others and our culture that we develop as a consequence of that has an impact on our own conscious experience. As Singer says in chapter two, he pointed out that in the, the history of ideas, the concept of consciousness was intimately related to the possession of a conscience, the higher order ability to assess the moral value of your lower or lower order mental states, or your behavior. What kind of self-model, he says, do you need in order to become such a moral agent? To have a conscience. The answer could have to do with the progression from a mental representation of the first-person singular perspective to that of the first-person plural, along with the ability to represent mentally what the benefits or risks of a particular action would be for the collective as a whole. You become a moral agent by taking the coherence and stability of your group into account. This is the idea from philosophy of um, the independent observer. Um, 
was it's been popularized in, in part by Adam Smith's The Theory of Moral Sentiments, where he makes a lot of conjectures about what would the impartial observer, the objective observer, think about things. And he references culture and what your fellow individuals would think about that. And Metzinger suggesting that this might be, in actuality, where our, our ideas of morality come from. He says, I believe the human self-model was successful because it installed your social group as an ideal observer in your mind. And to a much stronger degree, that was the case uh, in any other primate brain. That was more the case for us than any other primates. So, Bessinger talks about canonical neurons and mirror neurons and um, he says that the canonical uh, neurons uh, also respond to the visual perception of objects in our environment. Our brain does not simply register a chair, a teacup, an apple. It immediately represents the seen object as what I could do with it as an affordance, a set of behaviors. He goes on to say, it turns out the traditional philosophical distinction between perception and action is an artificial one. In reality, our brains employ a common coding. Everything we perceive is automatically portrayed as a factor in a possible interaction between ourselves and the world. He goes on to say, in the 1990s, researchers discovered another group of neurons. Um, they fire not just when monkeys, this was the example was from monkeys brains perform object directed actions such as grasping a peanut but also when they observe others performing the same type of action because these neurons respond to actions performed by others they are termed mirror neurons it says convert uh, Metzinger goes on to say converging empirical data show that when we observe other human beings expressing emotions we simulate them with the help of the same neural networks that are active when we feel or express these emotions ourselves. He goes on to say, It is interesting to note that our ability to recognize a particular feeling in another human being can be weakened or switched off by blocking the relevant parts of the mirror, neurons, the mirror neuron system. It is believed, for example, that certain areas in the ventral striatum of the basal ganglia are necessary in recognizing anger. Patients with damage to this area show impairment in identifying aggression signals emitted by others. So these mirror neurons can be uh, amplified or inhibited. Mesinger goes on to say, there seems to be an underlying principle uniting these new empirical discoveries. Certain layers of our self-model function as a bridge to the social domain because they can directly map abstract inner descriptions of what is going on in ourselves onto those of what goes on in other people. He goes on to say, first we developed the self-model because we had to integrate our sensory perceptions with our bodily behavior. Then the self-model became conscious and the phenomenal self-model was born in the ego tunnel, allowing us to achieve global control of our bodies in a, in a much more selective and flexible manner. This was the first, this was the step from being an embodied natural system that has and uses as an internal image of self 
as a whole to a system that, in addition, consciously experiences this fact. The next evolutionary step was what Vittorio Gallese, Rizzolatti's colleague at Parma, and one of the leading researchers in the field has called embodied simulation. In order to understand the feelings and goals of other human beings, we use our own body model in the brain to simulate them. So when we see someone else smiling, we create a simulation in our brain of what it's like when we smile. Someone's in pain, we simulate what it means to us to feel that kind of pain. He goes on to say, Mesinger goes on to say, Social cognition has now become traceable to empirical neuroscience on the level of single-cell recordings, showing us not only how ego tunnels started to resonate with each other, but also how complex cooperation and communication between self-conscious organisms were able to evolve and lay the foundation for cultural evolution. My idea, he says, is that social cognition rests on what is sometimes called an exaptation, an ad adaptation led to an integrated body model in the brain and to the phenomenal self-model. Then the existing neural circuitry was exapted from another form of intelligence. It suddenly proved useful in tackling a different set of problems. He goes on to say, The new emerging general picture is inspiring. We are all constantly swimming in an unconscious sea of intercorporality, permanently mirroring one another, with the aid of various unconscious components and precursors of the phenomenal ego. He goes on to say, from a philosophical perspective, the discovery of mirror neurons was exciting because it gave us an idea of how motor primitives could have been used as, a semantic, as semantic primitives. That is, how meaning could be communicated between agents. Thanks to our mirror neurons, we can consciously experience another human being's movements as meaningful. Thus, in closing this chapter, Metzinger says, the mirror mechanism is conceivably the basic mechanism from which language evolved, by providing motor copies of observed actions that allows us to extract the action goals from the minds of other human beings and later to send abstract meaning from one ego tunnel to the next. He goes on to conclude the chapter with this. The mirror neuron story is attractive not only because it bridges neuroscience and the humanities, but also because it illuminates a host of simpler social phenomena. Have you ever observed how infectious a yawn is? Have you ever caught yourself starting to laugh out loud with others even though you didn't really understand the joke? The mirror neuron story gives us an idea of how groups of animals, fish, fish schools, flocks of birds, can coordinate their behavior with great speed and accuracy. They are linked through something one might call a low-level resonance mechanism. Mirror neurons can help us understand why parents spontaneously open their mouths while feeding their babies, what happens during a mass panic, and why it is sometimes hard to break away from the herd and be a hero. Neuroscience contributes to the image of humankind. We are all connected in an intersubjective space of meaning, what Vittorio Gallese calls a shared manifold. And then there's a discussion at the, in the appendix of this chapter with that very researcher about shared manifold.
and um, there's a lot of detail in that. Um, I'll just add one, uh, two quotes from that. Um, two quotes from that interview. Um, Vittorio Gallese describes the shared manifold as basically it describes our capacity for direct and implicit access to the experiential world of the other. He says, I think the concept of empathy should be expanded in order to accommodate and account for all different aspects of expressive behavior, enabling us to establish a meaningful link with others. This enlarged notion of empathy is captured by the term shared manifold. To put it simpler, he says, to put it in simpler words, every time we relate to other people, we automatically inhabit a we-centric space within which we exploit a series of implicit certainties about the other. The implicit knowledge enables us, this implicit knowledge enables us to understand in a direct way what the other person is doing, why, or he, why he or she is doing it, and how he or she feels about a specific situation. All right, it's a lot from the discoveries and ideas part. This lecture has trickled over into 53 minutes, but I wanted to make sure some of these uh, passages from Metzinger stuck with you and that you had an easy reference point for them and some additional commentary on them. It's interesting, I think, to see how Metzinger lays out this idea of consciousness and the ego tunnel um, and how we need ownership as the first kind of piece that can potentially lead to agency and notions of the will um, and the idea that as we get closer to understanding neural correlates, we already see examples of ways to manipulate those things, ways to manipulate the will. And you can probably begin to think as we move into this consciousness revolution section, some challenges that might create for society. And then this final idea that uh, what allowed cultural evolution to grow um, is mirror neurons, that we have neurons that help us in simulating what it must be like when someone else is experiencing something. And that um, can give rise to uh, maybe a, base, a, a shared manifold if we expand our notion of empathy, as Vittorio Gallese argues that we should. And another piece of this that's interesting to think about in terms of how we make decisions is one other quote from the interview that I wanted to share, which is, at present, we are witnessing a cultural paradigm shift. Now, remember, we're talking about the way in which how others behave has helped lead to cultural evolution. We have these shared norms and shared culture. The impact of new technologies, such as cinema, television, and more recently the Internet, with its massive introduction of multimediality, is drastically changing the way in which we communicate knowledge. The mediated objective status of culture as transported by written text like books, is progressively being supplemented with a more direct access to the same contents by means of the new media of cultural fruition. This media revolution will most likely introduce cognitive changes, and Torio says, and I suspect the, that mere neurons will again be involved. This makes me think of social media outrage and the ways in which it is contagious and has spilt over into how we talk about politicized issues. There's a lot there. 
won't go into more on that just yet. Hope this lecture was informative and interesting to you. And moving forward, we're going to talk about what this might mean for public policy and for ethics. Thank you for listening.